Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. He noticed the lumps months ago. Former House Speaker Sal DeMacy, now serving eight years on corruption charges, has been diagnosed with stage four tongue cancer, which may have spread to his stomach. At issue, whether the Federal Bureau of Prisons acted quickly enough when DeMacy asked for medical treatment back in January. Three months passed from the time DeMacy first went to sick call January 30th to the time he was given a biopsy on April 24th. I'm joined here in the studio by Steve Huggard. He's a partner on the law, with the law firm Edwards Wildman, and he cha- he's the chair of the White Collar uh, and uh, Government Enforcement Group. Steve was also a federal prosecutor for 17 years and has an expertise in the prison health system. Well, Steve, as you know, the, 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 the prison system claims it has the ability to deal with any and a range of health care crises in the prison population, everything from AIDS to cancer to heart disease. What's your experience with that? Um, well, that is their claim. They always say that they have that expertise, and oftentimes they do. They have four large medical centers that they can put prisoners in. The question here is, in this case, have they failed? And while they always claim to have the expertise, in this case, have they demonstrated that they, in fact, did not and were not able to provide the medical care that Mr. DeMacy was required to receive? Um, I think that they are loath to ever admit that they have a failing. Hmm. And because if they admit that they can't treat a patient population, then that patient population needs to be released or dealt with some other way, and they're not going to admit to that. But there have been cases, and there are cases, rare uh, cases, when the prisoner's needs exceed the ability of the Bureau of Prisons to provide care. And the guidelines allow for medical furloughs in those situations where the prisoner can be released in order to receive the care that he or she needs. Um, in this case, I think there are issues that go beyond furlough and to whether or not the Bureau of Prisons has provided a, or has acted with what we yeah. might call intentional indifference. There's there's a couple of complicating factors here. So Sal Macy actually finally saw somebody in Kentucky mm-hmm. on January 30th. And right then and there, without doing a biopsy, they told him they thought it was cancer. He wanted to have you know further treatment and asked for it, but he got moved right. by the U.S. Attorney's Office February second, and that was when he went on that long meandering um, the journey, bus, the, bus ride. the bus ride to nowhere. It was in Brooklyn and a couple other sites. He was here for a while. He was in Wyatt in Rhode Island. He did end up testifying one day up here. He didn't get returned to Kentucky until March twenty fifth. So that's almost two full months. And then it was another month before they gave him a biopsy, and that was after he had been moved out of Kentucky. Well, that's exactly what I was getting to when I mentioned intentional indifference. But is that the U.S. Attorney's Office, or is it the Federal Bureau of Prisons? Well, it's interesting to note, they're both part of the Department of Justice. They're not, they are both within the umbrella of the Department of Justice. So is it the U.S. Attorney's Office or the Bureau of Prisons? Did the people in the U.S. Attorney's Office know about the health issues when they They moved him up here? They have to know. Isn't that part of the deal? Is it my understanding that before you can move a prisoner, you have to have a complete health record on that individual, which would include right up to in case there was heart problems or, you know. They, they should have known. Did they know? I, I don't know. Um, and it's not clear. But did, did the Bureau of Prisons know? Absolutely they knew. And they put him on the bus. Also, when they put him on the bus, as you say, he went to Brooklyn, he went to Wyatt. When he came to Massachusetts, he was housed in Wyatt, which is a, yes. a detention facility right. down detention. in Rhode Island. That's right. There is a medical facility in Massachusetts at Devons. They didn't put him at Devons. They put him at Wyatt. You might have thought that if there was concerns about his health when he left Kentucky, that they would have put him at Devons so he could be treated and diagnosed properly while he was here for the grand jury. But that's not what the Bureau of Prisons did. He was also kept in solitary confinement for a good deal of the time that he was on the road. So he couldn't communicate with, you know, loved ones around anybody so that he couldn't even express his frustration or his fear about what was going on with his health. Right. And he did have the ability to communicate with people before he left Kentucky, and yeah. he had the ability to communicate uh, with counsel at various times. And, but beyond that, it's not just the, Bureau, the, the loved ones having to make the case. The Bureau of Prisons has a responsibility to its inmates. When someone gets locked away, they are supposed to be cared for. That's what the Bureau of Prisons says. They, we will provide the appropriate and reasonable medical care. That may not have occurred here. All right. So, I mean, do they have an obligation to respond as quickly and responsibly as, say, if I went to a doctor this afternoon with a suspicious lump and they, they, they got me right, all right, t- you know, tomorrow and the next day? I mean, do they have that kind of an obligation? This is not concierge care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 
there is a, when you are diagnosed with cancer, you're supposed to be treated for the cancer. You're not going to be getting the same level of care you're going to be getting at the Leahy Clinic, at Dana-Farber, or something like that, but you're supposed to be getting reasonable and appropriate care. And the question here is, it appears, at least, that that did not occur. Instead of providing the care that was required, they put him on the bus and said, we'll deal with you in two or three months' time, during which time the allegation is that it that, spread. That spread. And, yeah. and, you From know, one side to the other. And it's, 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 you know, it's stage four. It's the most serious type of cancer, as I understand it. And it could it. be in his stomach. They're not right. sure about that. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's not something that's part of the, of the uh, sentence. When you're sentenced, you're sentenced to loss of liberty. You're not sentenced to to be treated this way. And there's a question if, if in fact, they did know about it, if, you know, the, and these are just allegations in the papers, but if, this, if in fact, the Justice Department... No, I, I put a call into the U.S. Attorney's Office today. I didn't hear back from them, but I, that, I was going to ask that question. Did they know about the state of Saldamese's health before they moved him on February 2nd? If they knew and they, and they neglected his health, then there's a question, I think, as to whether or not this starts to get close to uh, violating the Eighth Amendment on, on cruel and unusual punishment. And I'm not, that's a high, high threshold for an inmate to make. And, and lots of inmates complain about type, that type, type of thing. And most have, are making specious claims. But if the facts are, as they appear to be here, that his health conditions were ignored for months while they worsened to a point where it is now life-threatening and critical, it, that, that's not what, you, what you're supposed to suffer through when you lose your liberty. What would the reasons be for doing that, you know, punitive reasoning? I mean, what, what, would, why, what would be the point? There, Revenge? I mean, for what? The guy's in prison for I, eight years. Why would they I, be so cavalier? I, I would doubt it. Well, cavalier is exactly the thing. It's, it's not intentional, probably. It's not directed at Sal DeMacy, probably. There is an attitude that unfortunately exists within correctional facilities that inmates are essentially property. You have no rights. You have no rights. You're, you're just, you do what you're told, you go where you, you're sent, and, you know, you keep your mouth shut, and don't make waves, and we'll get to you when we get to you. And, and, when, and that happens all the time, and it, but it, when it happens in this way, so that somebody's life is potentially at risk as a result, there's a problem. His civil rights may well have been violated. I mean, he may well have a, 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 an action here against the Justice Department, and I would imagine that his lawyers are going to try to get back before Judge Wolf and try to have a hearing into what happened. Judge Wolf is very unsympathetic to Saldamese. I'm talking to Steve Huggard. He's a partner with the law firm Edwards Wildman and chair of the White Collar and Government Enforcement Group. The, the other interesting thing is that you know once um, Saldamese got back to Kentucky, he was putting in for these things called cop-outs. You probably are, I don't even know what that stands for, but it's, it's when you're asking for uh, medical treatment in, in, in a prison facility, you have to put in these, you know, requests. You, to, you know, a request to go see a doctor. A re- request right. to see a doctor. It's called a cop-out. I don't know what, what that comes from. But it was one month before, even back in Kentucky, and, and, and that's when they knew. I mean, why would it take so long? It shouldn't take so long, especially when they've already said to him, in January, we think you have cancer. You would think that he would be right to the top of the list for getting medical treatment, mm-hmm. especially because he was in a, a medical facility in Kentucky, as I understand it. But the, uh, that's not what happened. And I think Judge Wolf, as you say, was very unsympathetic to him at sentencing. But there's a difference between yeah. guilt and innocence and, how, and what sentence order ought to be and then how the Department of Justice ought to take care of you once you're in its custody. Mm-hmm. And Judge Wolf may have a different view of, as to these facts than he did as to the underlying facts at trial. Well, is the prison system just overwhelmed, as the, the point you made a minute ago about specious claims and health problems? I mean, it, prisoners want to get moved for a variety of reasons. They think they're going to get better treatment in a medical facility than they do inside a prison. I mean, is it an overwhelming problem? And by the way, there's a big difference between saying, you know, you've got a torn rotator cuff versus, you know, obvious signs of cancer. So, I mean, they should be able to weed that they should be able to weed that out. And, and there is a little bit of, a, of an overwhelming sense, I think, within prisons and every, it all, people are just moving through and they're kind of fungible. But the difference here is that when he was seen back in January, they did indicate to him that he had a serious problem. And at that point, he's no longer just a complaining inmate. He should have not, no longer have been viewed as just another complaining inmate, someone who's saying, I've got a headache, mm-hmm. I've got problems, I, I need to be seen just because he wants to change, change the scenery. You know, they had already said to him, they've corroborated him that he had a problem. And at that case... I think they have an obligation to, to see that treatment through. So 
if they go back before Judge Wolf, what 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 could he do? I mean, well, he, I can't, he can't make this right. His No, he can't make this right, and his options are limited on a going-forward basis. But I would think that he could hold a hearing into who knew what when, ah. and I think that he could get to the bottom of that. I also think that he could um, potentially ameliorate the sentence. He could he could order the, the Justice Department to incorporate aspects of the sentence so that he's receiving care on, on a going-forward basis that he needs because – if they have, in fact, dropped the ball, as it appears they have, then who's, they'll, they'll say, well, he's now in Butner, he's in North Carolina, he's at a good facility, and he'll get the care he needs. Says who? If That's what I, my reaction, if I'm his lawyer, is, you know, you've already dropped the ball. You've already proven you can't take care of this man, and you won't take care of this man. So who? why should we trust you on a going-forward basis? I, th- I would think if the court got involved, that would do more to ensure that he did receive the appropriate care on a going-forward basis. Is it possible that he could be released into house arrest for and get proper medical care, like up here? Uh, it's possible. It's it's to change the sentence at this stage is very difficult. Um, as I said, he would have to, I think, make a claim that this rises to the level of cruel and unusual punishment, or that the Justice Department is improperly and unconstitutionally executing the sentence that was lawfully imposed by Judge Wolf. So that would be unlikely, but the judge could. When you say ameliorate the sentence, in what way? Ameliorate the sentence in that he could say, I want to have uh, – make sure that he's receiving the treatment he's, that he's receiving. I want him to have maybe access to an outside doctor. I want to have a status report every six weeks on the care that he's receiving. You know, so that if, if, if the Justice Department has to report to the court, this is what we're doing for him. This is the treatment he's receiving. This is what's going on. Then the courts they, – then they have to report. And if they have to report, they're going to be held accountable, and then they're going to make sure that he receives the treatment he's supposed to get. So just theoretical, what what happens, and this must happen all the time, a, a prisoner moves to the stage where they're basically terminal. What do they do? They, they just let them die there? Lots of people die in jail. It's a very sad thing, but lots of people die in jail. So they wouldn't, even if he became terminal, they wouldn't? You know, I, I would imagine if he became terminal and it was down to the last strokes, his, um, his lawyers would ask that he be released and furloughed so that he could die at home, and that may or may not be granted. Hmm. Is it ever granted? Occasionally, rarely. Hmm. It's, I mean, the prison, if you look at it as your release date is, in this case, I think it's November 17th hmm. of 2018. So when you were a federal prosecutor, t- tell me some of the other instances, some of the cases you saw. I mean, you, you seem obviously really knowledgeable about this and recognize it's a, it's a problem. How did it how did it come to uh, your attention? Well, I mean, with cancer, with inmates who had, had cancer, with inmates who have AIDS, um, it's one of the reasons why most people who are going to be sentenced, and I know I, I do defense work now, I always insist my clients get, get a full exam before they're sentenced because your medical care can be taken into account by the sentencing judge, and that can affect the sentence or where you're, you know, whether you get halfway house or whatever. But once you're in the system... Mm. It's so much harder to deal with. So we try to identify the issues up front. Um, but when people, when the AIDS epidemic especially broke, there was, there was an awful lot of issues surrounding AIDS in, in the prisons and people, that, you know, all of a sudden discovering they had AIDS when they were in. And that was um, people didn't know how to deal with AIDS as a society then. And so it was hard, especially hard in prisons. You know, I, I, I say this on the air all the time. I hear from prisoners all the time. As do I. And w- – Prisoners don't have cable, for one thing, so they, they can only watch over-the-air broadcasting. And, and, and contrary to what a lot of people might think, they actually want to know what's going on in the world. They want to, they, so they tune into news more often. So I hear from a lot of prisoners that have these kind of complaints and well beyond health care. And the thing that is common, some of them are just rants, as I'm sure you get those too, just the rants that are incomprehensible. But many of them talk in detail about the, about the bureaucratic morass that is – the prison system, federal and state. And and they send me things, and I look at these documents, and I think, this is true. Not, not only is it true, but it is one of the least transparent agencies we have anywhere, the whole prison system. How is that allowed to continue in this day and age? It's due to security reasons. Well, I don't um, believe that. But that's but that's the justification. They don't want you to know what's going on. That's, well, that's true. No, that that's true. But, the, but the, it is all about control and... Because there are pop- prison populations that are dangerous, they have rules in place. Now, the 
the reality is uh, somebody like Sal DeMacy, he the crimes he's committed of are very he's committed and convicted of are very serious crimes. But he's not a dangerous no. man. He's not hard to control. No. And there's no reason why he has to be behind this. Put in this solitary confinement. Right. Tell me why well, they well, would do that. They, they put lots of people in solitary confinement when they first enter a facility. Um, they say so that they can assess their health needs and, 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 and well, keep them separate from the general population. There is a school of thought that says it's designed to break you. Yeah, of course. And to make to make you realize that that they are in control and that yeah. you have no. Well, no he power. was in solitary not when he first went into prison, but during this time that he was in transport. Every time he went to a new facility. Yeah, he went into. And he goes into a new facility. They put you in the hole. Yeah. Because they want you to understand that who's who's the boss. That's awful. Yes, There's a whole is. thing going on right now. I'm curious to get your take on this before the Senate, United States Senate, about whether. Solitary confinement in and of itself is cruel and unusual. You know, unless you're proven yourself to be an absolute menace to the rest of the prison population, you know, you're doing life without parole, so there's nothing else that can be done to you and you're, you're stabbing other inmates. Um, I think that solitary confinement is. It's, people, I, I've, I've talked to people who have gone through it, and it, it just about breaks a man. Mm-hmm. You're in there, and if you're in there for much more than a day, and sometimes you're in there for ten days, something like that, you're you're almost crazy when you. Yeah, come you're out. totally disorientated. You know, whether it's night or day, you're, and you got right. this little slat there that they pass things through. And and you take somebody who is, and anybody who goes into into a facility is at risk of going into solitary. Yeah. Not everybody it doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen to an awful lot of people. You take somebody who's functioning in society and commits a uh, an embezzlement or a tax crime or something like that, not a, not a violent human being. And they're used to interacting with people on a regular basis. And you put them in solitary for a week or 10 days. When they come out, they're barely coherent. Really? And do they become more violent or just? No, they don't become more violent, but they become bitter. Yeah. I mean, when, you, when you talk to people who have been in prison and have come out, um, even people who say, you know, lots of people, they're, you know, the, the jails are full of innocent people. But even people who, who acknowledge, yes, I did something wrong and I, I understood what I did wrong and I deserve to be punished. I understand I deserve the incarceration. They say... The way you're treated in there is not appropriate. Mm. You know, it's it's um, petty tyrants. Yeah. I mean, I'm not soft on crime. I'm not soft on criminals. But the prison system is really just Byzantine. It is. And, and you know, and, and that's the, the big fear among all politicians is nobody ever gets reelected by being, quote, unquote, soft on crime. So yeah. everybody always ratchets it up. Which is why they get away with the, the lack of transparency exactly. and everything else. All right. Steve Huggard, thanks for joining us here today. Great. Up next, we all know what the candidates say is important, but it might be just how they say it that determines who wins. And we've got some experts who break down the presidential and Massachusetts Senate races for us, and we'll listen to some of what the candidates have to say and how they say it. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Miller Systems, designing and delivering websites, intranets, and portals on Microsoft SharePoint. Miller Systems, since 1995. Quality user experiences, technology that's right for the job. MillerSystems.com slash SharePoint. And Dedham Savings. We've just completed our first year as a sponsor for the speaker series. Peter Brown, President and CEO. And it was hugely successful on a bunch of different fronts. And that's why we're getting involved for a second year and hopefully many years beyond that. To learn how a partnership with WGBH can benefit your business, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. Marketplace's Kai Rizdahl. We don't have any people here with MBAs. We don't have people with trading licenses. We have people who want to tell stories. I think that most Americans are trapped in this cycle of buying a lot of clothing for very little money. And the stories we tell 
are about society at large using the economy and money to do that. Marketplace is coming to Boston Public Radio starting Monday, July 2nd, first in Boston at 6 o'clock here on 89.7 WGBH. Support WGBH right now and you'll be entered to win a trip for two to England to visit Highclere Castle, the real castle at the heart of the hit masterpiece drama Downton Abbey. You'll spend four nights at the Vineyard at Stockcross. Take a private tour of the castle with Lady Fiona Carnarvon and receive a signed copy of her fascinating book, Lady Almina and the Real Downton Abbey. But don't delay. This contest ends on June 29th. Call 888-897-9424. Grandpa, he threw the first ball out at Fenway Park. The very first, first ball out. Ever. Ever. <laughs> 100 years of legend and history of Fenway Park. Fridays on WGBH's Morning Edition. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show right now. I'm picturing you naked. Why? Because I'm, in a way, speaking in public. We can all remember that little bit of advice about how to handle the terror that often comes with public speaking, but it's a terror political candidates cannot afford, as, of course, speaking in public is one of the few ways to communicate their platforms and personalities. And we've also noticed that these things change over time, the way they present things or the way they say things. So what are we observing right now with President Obama, Mitt Romney, Elizabeth Warren, Scott Brown? Here to talk about that with me is Ethan Becker, president and senior coaching partner, the Speech Improvement Inc. Company Inc., and Joe Tetch, professor of psychology at Boston College, an expert on how body language indicates emotions and stress. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Great so, to be here. I mean, wh- really, what all candidates want to essentially communicate is trustworthiness. That's the thing that they feel, you know, confidence, leadership, trustworthiness. What what can speech or body language, I'll start with you, Ethan, do to communicate that? Well, uh, it's the primary way that they communicate it, in fact. The words that they use, the speech that they use, uh, determines whether or not people are going to believe them. Are they credible or not? Which is one of the reasons why it's so important to match a speech writer with a speaker, some of the most effective speakers will write their own speeches, but when they're not that good at it, and you get a writer to, to come in. And a challenge we've run into is if that writer, <clears throat> if that writer is using language that's not familiar or comfortable to the speaker, it doesn't come across as genuine. So mm. you get these great profound words that sound very artificial, and it causes a big problem in the credibility for that speaker. What about the issue, Joe, of? Um Staying on message. These guys go out there and essentially say the same thing over and over and over, maybe slightly rearranging the phrasing or, you know, the context demographically, you know, if they're in the south or the north or something like that. But doesn't – does that not wear on people or they don't hear – they think they're – it's personal to them, and it's only the journalists and other people like us who kind of notice this thing. Does it matter that they say the same thing over and over? Joe, I was going to say. I think that uh, in terms of uh, whether they are credible and confident and project that to the outside world, which is, after all, what they're all about to get votes, uh, very often uh, repeating the same message in the, in the most richest of formats, will get it across and will be effective. However, it's what I call the three R's that really do undermine the credibility of speakers, and that is whether they're relevant and on target. And, of course, we know that sometimes they're not, as with the press conference <coughs> that uh, uh, Governor Patrick and Elizabeth Warren had recently, they went off target. They yeah, kept, yeah, off they target. They kept being irrelevant. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, uh, the redundancy can be good up to a point, but anything that's excessive is not good. And therefore, if they are stamping in a message repeatedly, yes, okay, but not okay if they overdo it because then it's, as Shakespeare said, thou protest too much and you keep going over, a mockery. And over, over. Yeah. Actually, I want to play one that's becoming – I think it's fitting into that category. And this is Elizabeth Warren talking about the middle class being hammered. Let's play that one. <laughs> Let me be clear. I am not backing down 
I didn't get in this race to fold up the first time I got punched. I got in this race because people are getting hammered, and they are counting on me to stand up for them. All right, so that term, getting hammered, the middle class is being hammered. Even when she's asked a question about the Native American ancestry, all she says is the middle class is being hammered. I, I've heard it 8,000 times, and she's only you know been on this show once and you know, TV once, so it's not like I, she says it to me. But she said it in those occasions two or three times, just over and over and over. And to your point, there are two problems. One, <coughs> the redundancy over and over and over again. But secondly, the relevance. That wasn't what she was exactly. asked. She was asked about the heritage issue. Right. But keep in mind. And this was are... from the Democratic Convention, by the way. And she was referring to the ancestry issue that, when that, she said, you know. That I, particular technique that she's using, it, it, it's not easy to do, by the way. And folks will practice that when they are on the campaign trail because, uh, you know, a lot of times when, when somebody's getting into politics and they're just starting out, Asked and answered. Any question you ask me, I'm going to answer that question. But what they find out is that you're, you're not talking to a single person. You're talking to a lot of different people who don't get to hear the entire yeah, conversation. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the, the biggest challenges working with a candidate is to get them to be consistent with what the message is because they're not talking to the same person as they go. They're talking to the media. So the media is very in tune. They hear the same thing every single day. Uh, but to the listeners who show up at that particular event, they may be hearing it for the first time. Exactly. So it's, and this is also why, as a campaign goes on, speakers become really good. They often start out sort of not that great, and as they go, they practice. And in that case, it's not practicing in a room, you know, with a coach. It's practicing live, ten times a day, perhaps, with the same speech. And if, if you watch in contrast, after an election is over, uh, a speaker who is really great on the campaign. Sometimes they look like a totally different person because now they're no longer talking about the same content that they had. And now it's a new topic and they haven't practiced that. And they go back into old habits. It's hard, it's hard to do that, though, to stay on topic. And you know, the media in general is not uh, – for the most part, there's a, an interest in getting an emotional headline. Mm-hmm. And some of the topics that are discussed by the politicians are complex and not easy to put together into an eight-word soundbite. Well, the, the politicians themselves often put it into eight-word soundbite. They try to. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I get your take on a, on a couple. We have a couple of examples of speeches and deliveries. This one, and I'm about to play, is Barack Obama in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention. Just listen to him then, and then we'll play a little of him now. <laughs> this year, in this election, we are called to reaffirm our values and our commitments, to hold them against a hard reality and see how we're measuring up to the legacy of our forebears and the promise of future generations. And fellow Americans, Democrats, Anybody notice anything a little different? I say to you tonight... <laughs> From him then and now? Uh, besides his age. Yeah, I know. Is that funny? <laughs> yeah. It's a de- I mean, the environment is different, too, and the setting is different. When you're on the campaign... It's uh, there's a lot of emotion and excitement versus when you get into well, once you're in office. Now, this is very serious business and you yeah. learn very quickly that you've got to be very careful about what you say. But in that, in that particular moment, oh, he's he's in his game. He's in his zone. I, I saw I, I know about Barack Obama only since 2008. My life begins with Obama <laughs> okay. in 2008. But uh, I did see that clip and I heard him being very animated, yep. very fast. congenial, very fast. In 2008, yeah. uh, in the seventh game of the World Series, the presidential debates, he was a little different in the sense that uh, he showed a lot of gaze aversion, looking away, and a more monotonic kind of voice. And therefore, I would guess he was a little more uh, under stress, what I call audience stress, and showed a higher eye blink rate during that time than during this 2004 clip. Why? Because he's having fun in 2004. Why? 2008, he's on the carpet. So uh, this gets me into my topic, namely that his blink rate is, uh, gives him away when he's under a lot of stress, as it does the other candidates, but we'll probably get to that No, we don't get to that at any time. I mean, the thing that struck me most about that was how much more quickly he spoke. Mm-hmm. He's eliminated. <clears throat> he, had, he didn't have the pauses, <laughs> which are yeah. clearly so yeah. studied yeah. and so dramatic. That's, he punctuates his speech with that now for dramatic effect. 
So here he is. Uh, this is just eight months ago, and, and and this is interesting to me too. And I, both your takes on this. Mm-hmm. This is uh, President Obama speaking for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation uh-huh. earlier. Okay, uh-huh. here we go. Times have been hard. It's been three years since we faced down a crisis that began on Wall Street and then spread to Main Street and hammered working fam- families and hammered an already hard hit black community. Dropping community, you know, mm-hmm. putting on a little bit of the African American accent, dropping the G on the ING. So is 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 that pandering? Well, it's it's more technically we refer to it as assimilation. We tend to talk <laughs> like those around us, and for folks who are in the public environment, when you go to different places around the world, regionalisms, you tend to talk a little bit like the people around you. If In, in some cases, it sounds extremely fake. Like when you see somebody try to put on a Boston accent, they clearly don't have a Boston right. accent. Or a right? southern accent. Or a southern accent when it comes out and they don't have one. It, it's disingenuous. And if they do it a little bit, you know, it's, uh, it's different with each person. The level of credibility they have depends on who they are. It's easy to call it pandering. It's probably more trying to fit in in the, in the moment. Well, Joe, I, I mean, the president is extremely facile, and he, he can move easily from one group to another, and he can, he can assimilate mm-hmm. extremely well. Agree with that? That's interesting. At that black caucus where he should be friendly, congenial, among friends, all that good stuff, his blink rate was exactly the same <clears throat> as it was during the presidential debates at <clears throat> 62 blinks per minute, which is above average. Therefore... Uh, I think that he might not have been as comfortable as one would appear, it would have appeared to be on the mm. surface. And this gets at a point. We hear the message. We hear the words. We evaluate the words. But outside that awareness is this body language, these, these blinks. And for Barack Obama, gaze aversion. He looks away a lot, mm. as Roger Clemens did during his testimony in Congress, <laughs> just to bring up the current topic. And so uh, that's a little bit of a paradox here. Here he is of the Black Caucus, and he is high on his body language as an indicator of stress. Hmm. And stress. That's interesting. Yeah. But, but what about the fact that he was, as um, you were saying... We stumbled, you know, too. Ethan stumbled. was saying, you know, he was like... Trying, trying to, sound to sound like them, like so them. to speak. I mean... Yeah. It's dangerous business. It's dangerous business when you try to do that. Yeah, because you may be putting off other people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you, when you look at persuasion in general, I mean, there are only three ways to persuade for the most part, at least over the past 2,000 years. That's what we subscribe to. Aristotle, I think, was, was first who identified persuasion, right? The, 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 the key components, ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos is the idea you're going to persuade someone through credibility. Pathos through emotion. Logos through logic. And the secret sauce in, in really effective presenting and communicating is the, the right blend of ethos, pathos, and logos in both what you're saying and how you're saying it. And when you can match that, your ethos is strong. In politics, the whole game is about make your candidate's ethos really strong and the other candidate's ethos really mm-hmm. weak. And when you go and try and sound like them, right? Uh, it can effectively destroy your ethos in the wrong way, in the right environment. Some people can say, boy, he's just trying to sound like us, but he's not. And therefore, I don't believe anything he's saying. Well, there are two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. On okay. the one hand, it's what in psychology we call identification. If you talk the vernacular, you walk the walk with other people, you're ident- identifying with them, and yay, good, he's one of us. But there's also a patronizing quality mm-hmm. where he's saying, I'm going to talk like you so that you'll see me as like you, where in fact I'm not. Exactly. Yeah, and keep just an interesting point of information. Like When, when we coach, we coach at all levels around the world at, in a lot of these elections. And behind the scenes, at the end of the day, when you go to the human level, the person who's actually the candidate, a lot of times they're not, they're not actually doing it on purpose. I mean, outside it's like, oh, can you believe that person? But at the end of the day, when we're talking with them and coaching with them, and this isn't just even in politics and other environments, it's for, for many people it's a natural human thing to try and make a connection. And sometimes it's just done unconsciously. Of course, it just plays really badly on television or radio, which in, in politics, in that area, that's, that's your medium of communication. Talking to Ethan Becker from the Speech Improvement Company and Joe Tetch, professor of psychology at Boston College, and he's an expert on body language. We're talking about political speech, public speaking, how to communicate, what the candidates have to do. And it's not just what they say, but how they say it. 
and what they look like while they're saying it. So your research, Joe, is mostly about blinking. What what does that actually say? I have dry eye syndrome, though, so I blink a lot anyway. <laughs> but but what does it what does it say? Is it does it indicate a nervousness or what? Well, there are two aspects to the facial expressions. Uh, one is blinking, and the other is gaze aversion, looking away. These these two are the new guys on the block that tell us whether the person's under stress or not. All the literature since 1927 shows what I call the blink hedonia hypothesis, blink feelings. When you are not feeling positively or you're feeling uncomfortable or under stress, you your blink rate increases. Very stable. When you look away and show gaze aversion as Barack Obama does, then it could mean one of three things. Either you're uncomfortable looking at the person because you're afraid and intimidated about what they're going to say to you in the interview. Secondly, you're lying. A third, you're taking a time out to think of your next response. Mm-hmm. That's what I call a cognitive sabbatical. You kind of go on mm-hmm. sabbatical for a while. But blinking clearly gets it stressed. Therefore, it's a red flag as to whether the person is lying or not. Blinking does not get it lying. It says, hey, let's look a little closer at this. Hmm. How can you tell, either one of you, when a candidate is lying? And, and what do you mean by lying? Exaggerating, um, saying things for dramatic effect? I mean, lying is... Um, you, you don't have that thing from Scott Brown earlier this morning, do you? <laughs> there, there was an interesting one. I'm going to see if we can find it. But, um, yeah, what do you mean by lying? Well, it's easy. You just listen to the commentators on TV. <laughs> oh, wait, no. No, that's not it. That's Wait, no. Yeah, look, how do you know? How do you know? I mean, all right. Here's one. We do anything. have. We do have, This is uh, Scott Brown from earlier this morning on a uh, mm-hmm. uh, radio talk show on WTKK. Let's hear what he had to say. Uh, once again, teams that were going to the playoffs talk about issues. When's the last time you heard a senator talking about BRAC, which is a base r- r- closing issue? Oh, this is not wrong uh, one. Wrong one. It was. It was a. It was a question about. Uh, I, I'll try to paraphrase it. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he was. He was talking about. Um, he said he has he frequently has secret meetings on a, he has secret meetings on a daily basis with King Oh, now we have it. Now we have it. Let's play it. Got it. Speaking of issues, there is a big issue now. The, this congressional issues, meeting on issues in, in secret uh, meetings and w- with kings and queens and prime ministers and, and business leaders and military leaders talking, voting, working on issues every single day. All right. So <laughs> he says every single day he has secret meetings with kings and queens and prime ministers and leaders of other countries. I mean, mm-hmm. is that an exaggeration? It, it, let me what, just ask, is, is it, he saying that he has done that? Or is he says he uh, does that every day. That. Okay. Yeah. Is that a lie? Is that an exaggeration? Who does it? Barack Obama? Or no, him? Senator Scott Brown. That was Scott Brown. Yeah, I understand, but I thought he might have been talking. No, about he was talking about himself. Huh. <laughs> well, I, I think the, I think the issue. You look rather surprised. Yeah, because because it sounds like he's busy with other things and he wouldn't have time for that, and it's not in his book. No, I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I, but no, I'd what say... is that? What do you call that? Hyperbole? Yeah, hyperbole. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, and 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 from a from a communication perspective. We look at what's not so much technically accurate, but what's effective versus ineffective at the end of the day. And if he's trying to send a message, if the message he's trying to send is that every single day I'm doing these things, well, that may not be enough evidence to give him the ethos he needs. But he's most likely trying to send a message that says, hey, I'm familiar with this kind of dialogue. I'm familiar. I play in that space. It's more likely that that's the message. Well, the accusation in that case was that this folk, the, the, the focus of this uh, campaign has been on the frivolous yeah. and that nothing important takes place. And he was reacting, yeah, so he's, pushing he's back, saying, saying, oh, I meet every day with him, yeah. you know, important people. And that's what he was trying to say. All right. We're going to take a short break. I'm joined here in the studio by Ethan Becker from the Speech Improvement Company, Joe Tetch, professor of psychology at Boston College. We're talking about politicians, how they speak, how they present themselves, and whether body language and the way they say something means more than actually what they say. And we may take some of your phone calls if you've got any for our experts here at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you 
and the Merrimack Valley Jazz Festival on the shores of the beautiful Merrimack River, August 10th and 11th, featuring Amanda Carr and La Creme des Femmes and the Compact Big Band. You can learn more at merrimackvalleyjazz.org. And It's Your Move, Inc., a move management company specializing in the planning, orchestrating, and execution of moves for senior citizens, helping families sort through and organize treasures collected over a lifetime. It's Your Move, Inc.com. And the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. On the next Callie Crossley Show, Bullying and Gay Youth. 20 years ago, Governor Bill Weld formed the Governor's Commission on Gay and Lesbian Youth. The commission's job was to understand how anti-gay discrimination and harassment in schools affected kids. We'll take stock of how much progress has been made and how much further schools and society need to go. That more today at 1 on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. On Saturday, July 14th, folks from all around will be heading down to WGBH's studios in Brighton for the WGBH Fun Fest. Meet your favorite PBS Kids characters, rock out to fun family music, and enjoy plenty of ice cream from all your local favorites. There's even a bouncy house. And the best part is, a family four-pack of tickets can be yours for a gift of just $30. Online at WGBH.org slash funfest. From the Economy Newsroom in Kendall Square, this is Greg Wong for WGBH Boston Public Radio. The WGBH Economy Report, Friday during Morning Edition, a partnership between Xconomy.com and 89.7 WGBH. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. We're talking public speaking, specifically about politicians and whether what they say doesn't matter as much as how they say it or how they look when they're saying it. Joined here in the studio by Ethan Becker from the Speech Improvement Company and Joe Tetch, professor of psychology at Boston at Boston College. Sorry. Um, I wanted to ask you, we're taking your phone calls, by the way. Anybody have any question they want about public speaking or if you have a horror story about your own public speaking, let me know what that is. 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970, or some techniques you might have to get through the terror of uh, being a public speaker. Um, I'm getting curious to get your reaction to uh, how politicians effectively handle interruptions or heckling. I have examples of both President Barack Obama and Mitt Romney recently who had been Heckled. One was actually during a speech uh, during, during President Obama's first uh, campaign, and he was in Florida. And the second one was uh, Romney at a campaign stop in Iowa about ten months ago. Here we go. Hold on, everybody. Excuse me, young man. This is going to be a question and answer session, so you can ask a question later. Let me make my statement. Why don't you all sit down? Then you can ask a question. That's why we're having a town hall meeting. Sit down. You, you'll, have, you'll have a chance to answer your question, but you don't want to disrupt the whole meeting. Just be courteous, that's all. To all of the thousands of good and decent Americans I've met who want nothing more than a better chance, a fighting chance, to all of you, I have a simple message. Hold on a little longer. A better America begins tonight. Sorry, people, that was the wrong one. This, this is the one where, you know, he's interrupted when he was talking about uh, corporations or people, too. Here we go. One is we could raise taxes on people. That's not the way. That, corporations. Cor- corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on. Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So where do you think it goes? What, what, whose pockets? Whose pockets? Okay, so that is Mitt Romney being heckled about 10 months ago by saying, after he said that corporations are people too, and uh, President Barack Obama just being shouted down back in, uh, uh, I don't know, 2008, I guess it was. I actually thought they both handled it pretty well. Oh, Barack Obama tried to put on his put on a real cool, you know, hey, ma, hey, mom, you know, it got, let me finish my statement. You know, he was like trying to be really cool, and I, th- and I thought Mitt Romney handled it really well, made a good point. It's the heckling in general is really difficult it for is. a speaker, any, any speaker. And it's easy 
it's easy from afar, from the sidelines, to watch it and be like, oh, look at how they handle it. But in the, in the end, it's very tough. Now, I think what, what works in these kinds of environments are how you validate the heckler mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. Now, in, in, in general, what we say is, look, when it starts to get to a point that it is a distraction for our, all of your listeners, that's when you need to address it in some form. Now, what Obama did is said, hey, listen, you're going to get a chance to talk. Uh, just not right now. Now he said it in his own. If you noticed, he was assimilating, as we were talking about earlier, to, to that particular crowd. Uh, when it happened recently with him, and it was earlier this week, he handled it very differently. But the environment was different. Uh, here, it was at a rally, and he was charged, yeah. and it was the same speech he yeah. had been giving. It was on his head. He knew where he was. This week, it was an address to the press. It was very quiet and very serious, and it was a new speech. So it would threw him off of his. Day. That was a re- reporter from the Daily Caller, and that right. you know that, that was jumping it was, in. It was it was um, rude, is what it was. It, it was, and it, it was, and yeah. and, and, and very unusual because the American press is extremely deferential to uh, our, our presidents, senators, politicians, and this was somebody from. The, you know, British, yeah, British in, in those quieter moments where it's very serious, it's easy to get knocked off your game, and it's tough. It's tough. What are you going to do? You're there live. Mm. You know. Now with Romney, okay. So in, in the, the clip that you just played, uh, so similar, they were they were sort of jumping in, accusatory. Now, what what one thing that he could have done to make it stronger would have been to do a validator in the beginning. Now, what he did is he dived right into the debate. Mm-hmm. of it, back and forth, tit for tat with things, yeah. which is very difficult for television. It's fantastic live. In fact, it's healthy debate in the town hall type of a thing, which is where he is. He was at that particular time. But on television, well, the only you don't get all of that. No, you you don't just get, get sort of the that's clips. True. And that's the, that's the challenge with many of these sort of public debates. They, they tend to go really well for either politician, whatever side you are, they de- tend to go well live. Mm, that's but, a good point. You know, when you only get eight seconds or so of the clip, it's tough. <laughs> okay, it's tough. So. I think you're absolutely right, Emily, that they both handle it well and both in different ways, and they both showed the metaphors of handling hecklers. Number one, Barack Obama smoothly says, yeah, you're on target, but you'll get your chance, and he joins. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what happened with Romney was he dived right in to show he was tough and strong and disagreed and confronted. Both of good metaphors because the audience is saying, oh, Barack Obama's kind of smooth and handling it very well, and then he'll come back and show that the guy's wrong, and Romney's showing he's tough and he's willing to go with fist to fist. That's good in a leader, too. So I think they both handle it well, and there are two metaphors in dealing with hecklers, and they both showed them very, hmm. very nicely. Yeah. Or we're taking your calls. We've been getting some calls, but frankly, they've been off point. No offense to you people who called in, but 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. One person did call in and leave us a message, and she said that Barack Obama doesn't get his point across because he drops his voice at the end of his mm-hmm. point, and mm-hmm. it drives her crazy. Do you, do you agree with that? Oh, I'll let uh, Ethan take that one. He does. He does, and, and he doesn't do it all the time. I do it, but, too. It's uh, annoying. I can't stand it when I hear my, myself do it. What did you say? A, it's a, <laughs> that was great. It is a good example of how sometimes you have to look at the mechanics of speaking with a speaker. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has to have perfect speech or perfect accent. Uh, when we look locally here at folks like Mayor Menino, as an oh, example. Yeah. We have some a tape of him, too. Yeah, it's a, for those of you who've heard him speak, and so he has a particular style of speaking. Yeah. But it's, it's a, I, always, I think it's a good example of how uh, what the textbook says you should have for speech is not always going to be the most effective, depending <laughs> on where you are. And it does play into a little bit of trying to sound like where you're at. But in Mayor Menino's case, hey, look, his particular style appeals to the people who need to elect No, I don't know him. about that. Let, let's listen to a little bit of uh, Mayor Menino. I'm going to talk over But something it. stands in the way of taking He's our reading this, obviously. To the next level. The next level. A student assignment process. No, 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 no. The ships I kids to schools. It's the same cadence. Across our city. Over and over. Pick any street. A dozen children probably attend a diff- dozen different schools. And he always has a flub, no matter what, Parents even if he's reading it. Parents might not know each other. Students might not play he together. Doesn't, he doesn't write any of this stuff. They can't I mean, that's so obvious to me. I study for the same test. Yeah. And then the, you, see, you got the, th- you got the, the, the cadence, like you got deserve. the stumbling, and you got the Boston accent. Yeah. But he appeals, right, Joe? I mean, he's got an well. appeal. He sure does. He sure does have an appeal. <laughs> and and when an incumbent has an appeal to all the people because they are Bostonians, they are going to vote, uh, 
uh, with some kind of chauvinism. I think he uh, is very effective, but as Ethan might tell you, the communication is not there. However, I believe the semantic value of words in these elections is not as important as the body language and what surrounds the semantic uh, use of the words. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I feel the personality is being evaluated, the guy is being evaluated, and what's that come down to? how he looks, how he looks away, how he might be fidgety, how he shows active head movements. And therefore, the niceties in the semantics of the language are not as important as what we're seeing grossly in terms of... Actually, I have somebody here on the line, but I think we've got a hot one with Neil from Waltham. Neil, what do you got? Oh, hi. I hope you can hear me okay. I'm in my car. Go ahead. Listen, I I would respectfully disagree with your your two guests... uh, uh, analysis of how the heckling was handled by Romney and by Obama. Um, I thought that Obama, uh, and that must have been a few years yeah, ago, yeah, it was. was brilliant. I thought he he did, he took control of somebody. I it seemed like that was very rude to be in the for somebody to, to go out of turn and say, "Hey, listen to me." And I thought he diffused. He handled that, and he said, "Look, I'm in control of this meeting." I'm going to keep it within the constraints. Okay, you didn't think Mitt Romney did that, too? I thought he did. He, uh, no, he blew back on them and said, well, what do you think p- corporations are made of, you idiots? They're made of people. And when they said, they're, you're putting it in your pockets, and he said, whose pockets? The people's pockets. So I thought he, I thought he handled it but really at the, well. But at the, 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 the difference in what I think what the caller is saying is, and I actually agree with what the caller is saying, with Obama. Neil, I'm sorry, we're out of time, so I'm going to have to cut you off. You called a few minutes earlier. We could have debated this more. Thanks for calling. With Obama, he he was able to diffuse it to the point that the headline time was very small, and with Romney, because of that lack of diffusion, it was a bigger headline, and the clips it, he could come across a little rougher and harsher. And the you know, media from a did a thing, disservice to Mitt Romney because they excerpted well, yeah, the sure. part where he said. Corporations are people too, and it never gave him, as you pointed out earlier, yeah. never never included the back and forth where really he acquitted himself. Yeah, but that's why learning to speak in this way in the public environment is different than in in your work environment. To this point about sort of our speech and whether it matters, when you have millions of dollars behind promoting who you are in your brand, hey, you can afford to have sloppier speech, and your message gets through. When you're in a business meeting or you don't have that, you're just going about your day, the quality of your articulation really matters from your from the people right. that are listening to you. All right. My thanks to Ethan Becker and Joe Tetch. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. We'll Thank be back you. tomorrow at noon from Elizabeth Warren to Scott Brown to Sal DeMacy to Eric Holder being held in contempt of Congress and a flower that smells like rotting fish. It's our spin on the news of the week. And stay with us now for the Kelly Crossley Show coming up next. A South End institution is turning 75. Do you know which one? And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston Zoo New England is here to talk corpse flowers and animals enduring heat and more. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org. Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.